Okay, Boker Tov and Chodesh Tov. Good morning and a good Chodesh. I want to thank our uh, sponsors this morning. This morning's Pasha class is uh, sponsored by Irving and Bonnie Churson in commemoration of the Yurtzeit of her beloved father, Pinchas Ben Yosef, and his beloved mother, Volya Bas Shmuel, and by Sandy and Sid Goldschmidt in commemoration of the Yurtzeit of her beloved mother, Sivya Bas Avram Matisyo, and his beloved father, Achaver Ephraim Ben Achaver Moshe Yehuda. Their neshamas should all have an aliyah through the Torah learning we will do in their memory. We are in Parshas Truma, page 444 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And now we have transitioned from Parshas Yisro, which was the seminal event of Jewish history, the giving of the Torah, the major kumbaya moment, the moment of unprecedented and unparalleled divine revelation, in which Hashem spoke directly to us, so much so that it actually created anxiety and fear, and He had to stop. The rest of the Torah was communicated through Moshe. We went from the top of the mountain to spirituality to last week the Ve'ela HaMeshpatim. We spoke last week about the opening letter, not even the opening word or the opening Pasuk, just the opening letter, Ve'ela, the Vav HaChibor. Why does last week's Pasha begin Ve'and? You don't begin a sentence with and. Rashi told us last week, in order to create a continuation, a connection between Pasha's Mishpatim and Pasha's Yisro, that not only do we find God in the spiritual moments, we don't just find God in the sunset or the sunrise or the birth of a child or the Grand Canyon or the Swiss Alps or the Kumsitz or the incredible Shir or the amazing Ne'ilah. Where do we find God? In the Ve'ela HaMishpatim. Just as those were from Sinai, just as when we stood at the base of the mountain, we were overcome, we were transformed with a wave of spirituality, Spirituality is ultimately rooted in the Ve'ila HaMishpatim, in the criminal law, civil law, civic law, in all of the many, many mitzvahs of last week's Pasha that mold and shape us not just into people who are observing Torah, but Torah personalities. We talked last week, the difference between a good American and a good Jew. A good American is just not stealing or raping or pillaging or cheating on taxes or murdering. You're not really good, you're just not bad. But the Torah crafts us into being good, fine people. That we cannot be indifferent or passive to someone else's pain or suffering. We have a liability if someone has a health crisis in front of us and we don't intervene and so on. So we went from Yisro, the moment of great spirituality, Ve'ela HaMishpatim, the expression of that spirituality rooted in the mundane. When you go to work, when you go to the gym, when you go to the supermarket, when you live in your home, when you walk on the street, the Harsinai is lived and breathed not just in the religious institutions, but Harsinai finds its greatest expression, it's lived and breathed in the Ve'ela Mishpatim out in life. So where do we go from there? Yisro to Mishpatim too, by Daber Shema Moshe Lemor, Daber Bnei Yisrael, V'yikhuli Truma. What comes next? We have a relatively new member who moved in a year ago or so. And every time his parents visit, it happens to be, just happens to be, they come for Yontif, there's Yisker, they came for other reasons, and it just happens to be, every time his parents visit, there was overlapping with an appeal in Shul. <laughs> you come for Yontif, there's always Yisker, Yisker has an appeal. So he made a joke, he came recently for Shabbos, he said, what's the appeal this week? What's it going to cost me this week? So what happens? You go from Yisro, the highest of the highs, spirituality, kumbaya, incredible, on fire, Mishpatim, bringing it, living it in the mundane, how we interact and our responsibility and compensations and damages. And we spoke last week, our obligation, responsibility to heal, to practice medicine. And, 
as my friend's father would say, eventually the appeal is going to come. V'yichuli <laughs> truma, there it is. V'yichuli truma, everyone knows the famous joke, right, about the couple, the plane went down, they're stranded on the island, and he asks her, they're sitting there and they're despondent, they're hopeless, how are they possible? You don't know this joke? This is only the oldest Jewish joke list. You don't know it? Okay, so it's on, they're sitting on the island and they're hopeless and helpless and what will happen? How will they be saved? Who will know them? So he says to her, tell me, did you uh, uh, email anyone? When's the last time you spoke to people? I'm about to butcher the joke because I wasn't prepared to share it. So, did you pay the electric bill? Did you do this? And then he says, tell me, did you play the, the pledge to federation? She says, no. He says, oh, Baruch Hashem, don't worry, they'll find us. <laughs> so, V'yichuli Truma. V'yichuli Truma. The pledge, the appeal, it was only a matter of time till the appeal came. Isn't it an enormous letdown from Yisro? <laughs> Spirituality. Ve'ela HaMishpatim. The continuation, expression, the fulfillment of Harsinai in the real world. And then all of a sudden, it always comes down to money. Every week you come from the Parsha class, you have to hear that spiel about friends of BRS. Enough already. Genukshayim. The same spiel from Matthew every week. $180, you enjoy the class, we got to keep the lights and air conditioning on. If you're not a member, minimally be a member for $180. Which, by the way, if you're not, you can still join. If enough people join, there'll be a raffle. If you're listening online and you benefit from the shiurim produced through Boca Raton Synagogue, feel free to join also. $180, it's minimum we could do. So isn't it, you came to learn Torah. You came to climb the ladder of spirituality. You came to sit on top of the mountain and feel Hashra, Hashchina, in the presence of Hashem. And we always have to ruin it by making it about the money. Why is it always about the money? Listen to this incredible insight. Listen to this incredible insight. It's a Rav Avram Simcha Mi Barnov. But it really comes down from the Baal Shem. The Baal Shem quotes a Medrash in Tana Debele Yorabba, Perak Yudzayim. But Medrash, Kishom Yisrael Nasa Venishma Miyad Amr Hashem, the Yikhuli Truma. Klal Yisrael said, Nasa Venishma, we're in. We believe in you. We're with you. We're devoted to you. Just tell us what to do. We'll do it. We're in love. This is a relationship. This is a connection. There's affection. We love you. Nasa Venishma, we're in. Whatever you need. So what does God say? Yeah, you love me? Yeah, anything? Yeah, you're really prepared? Okay. Yekhuli truma. Let's see how much you love me. Are you willing to spend your money? Yesh levoyer. So the Baal Shem said, Ki yesh kama b'nei adam sheyesh lam chashkos halimad batorah v'yatfila. Achein bevoam ha-mitzvah stoka az monim es atzmu mamonim chaviv alehem. We have so many people when it comes to Torah learning. I love Torah. I'm transformed through Torah. Chakira, Lamdas, Halacha, Machshava, Chasidus, Pnimiya Satora. I love learning Torah. I heard the most amazing shir. I listened to the most amazing class. I read the best sefer. They love learning Torah. When it comes to tefillah, the first step minion and the last one to leave, and they don't talk, and they're about tefillah, and the nigunim, and they shuckle like nobody else. They love learning. They love tefillah. They even love chesed. They volunteer. They show up. But when it comes to tzedakah, then the wallet's very tight. Stucco, why do you have to always make it about the money? Why do you have to pay to play? Why is it all about the Tzedakah? The core test of the proof of how devoted you are, how invested you are in God. By the way, God doesn't ask you for the money for Him. You're not paying for Him. 
to get upgraded on his flight, upgraded in the meal, supersized on the coke. You're not giving money to the Rebona Shalom. He's not driving a nicer car, living in a better house because you paid the money for him. For whom does Hashem want you to give the money? His other children. You're his child. He has other children who are indigent, impoverished, who are struggling. And he says, do me a favor. I'm your father. By the way, you come to earn any of the money without me, I'll tell you what. I'm the senior partner, you're the junior partner. You put in a lot of work, you put in the sweat equity, but the success of the project is all up to me. But I'll tell you what, even though I'm the determinant of its success, I'm the senior partner, I'll tell you what, you keep 90% of the profit. Just do me a favor. 10% can you give to your siblings? They need help, they're struggling, they're suffering. You love them, supposedly, they're your siblings, my other children. You keep 90%, enjoy, indulge, do what you want. 10% could you share and when you look back at the Rebona Shalom and you say, no, no. Because I pay tuition, it's very expensive. You know what the cost of kosher meat is. You know what it is to be a Jew. No. What will be? I won't have enough to indulge, to live a life of luxury. So you say no. When you're stingy with your money, Hashem says, save your words. Save your proclamations of love. Save your declarations of Nasa Minishma. Because when the proof is in the pudding when the rubber meets the road. If you're not willing to help his other children, you're not living to give tzedakah. And that's why the medrash, incredible medrash, Tana de Be'elio, a terribly inconvenient medrash. But the medrash says, Nasa v'nishma, Hashem heard. I love you. He said, yeah? Take out your checkbook. You love me? Where's your credit card? You love me? Let's see how much you love me. Do you love me so much you're willing to share? Not even with me, but with my other projects, with my other children. Are you willing to give? And that's what the Gemara in Erevan says, There are three ways you get to know a person. You want to know the truth about a person? Not just the lip service, not just the big game that they talk, not just the religious, virtuous life they claim to live. It's easy to say, Baruch Hashem, Chaste Hashem, Amir Hashem. And it's easy to shuckle. And it's easy to quote, learning and love to go to Shiurim. Where is the proof? Bekiso. What do you do with your money? How do you allocate how do you allocate your, your money? So is telling us that Hashem says, if you love me, show me. If you love me, show me. That's Rabbi Avi Weiss's famous story about he had to come in and he called his son and asked him to pick him up at the airport. And his son said, Abba, I love you so much. I just, I can't, I'm busy, I have a conflict. So he says, that's nice, but I need you to pick me up at the airport, Abba. You're the greatest Abba. There's never been a better Abba. And I love you so much. I said, yeah, that's nice, but I need, you, I need you to pick me up at the airport. Abba, I wish I could. No son has ever loved an Abba like I love you and I admire you and you're the greatest ever. It's just that I can't. So he said to his son, do me a favor. Love me less and pick me up from the airport. <laughs> and that's an amazing, amazing comment on all relationships. It's an insight to every relationship we have in life. Love me less and pick your laundry up off the floor. <laughs> love me less, and listen to me, children, when I ask you to please do so. Love me less, spouse, love me less, children, friend. Love me less and do what I'm asking. Hashem says, Nasa v'nishma, that's a beautiful card. That's a box of chocolates. That's a bouquet of roses. That's lovely. That's so nice, Nasa v'nishma. It's so lovely. Now let's see. V'yikuli truma. Love me less, and give 10% of the money I enabled you to earn and share it with my other projects, enterprises, institutions, and the people who need it. Says the Ribbono Shalom, Nasev and Ishma, join friends of BRS. And if you don't join friends of BRS, V'yichuli Truma, 
you come and you hear my Torah. This is exactly Mamash the Lashen of Rav Avram Simcha Mibarnav of the Baal Shem. It's exactly what he's saying. People, Yeshlam Chashka Chalimud Batorah. I go to the best shir. I love it. There used to be coffee for everyone. Now it's only for the people who pay. But it's an amazing shir. It's coffee and it's nice and comfortable in the room and the lights are on and they provide the chumash and they announce the page and it's a great cheer. I love learning. Okay, can you contribute to everything that makes possible that learning? Ah, I give elsewhere. I can't. I don't know. I'm on a tight income, a fixed budget. I give my great great grandchildren. That's nice, but you love the limud Torah, the yichul Then you have to give, you have to give as well. That's what the Beis Halevi says at the beginning of the parsha. Why does it say the yichul What should it say? The What is the And he says, when you buy something material and you make a purchase, you appreciate, may appreciate what you brought, or may have been a complete waste. And sometimes the money adds value to our life, and sometimes you don't get anything for it. But what's true for when we spend money on ourselves is the opposite when we spend money on others. When we spend money on ourselves, maybe we got something out of it, maybe we didn't get something out of it. But when we spend something on others, not only did we not lose, we gained much more in, in return. And so it's v'yikhuli. It's not yitnu. You didn't give anything. V'yikhuli truma. You received by giving. You fulfilled the very purpose for which you have that money. True money is called dhamim. It took the blood, sweat, and tears to earn it. And that's why it's very hard to part with. It represents our effort and our investment. It represents our saving. It represents our budget. It's very difficult to part with it. But when we part with it for the right reason, and we enrich or enable someone else's life or some good cause, then not only have we not given up, it's not v'yitnu. You didn't give, but v'yikhu, in fact, you received. And he explained the Pasuk in Tehillim this way. We say in a shiva home, the parak of Tehillim, we say in the shiva home, parak memtes, Ends, It's also a very nice song. In death, you can't keep everything. When you die, you can't keep everything. So the Malbim asks, what do you mean? You can't keep everything. But what? Can you keep some things? What can you take? Has anyone figured out a way to take anything with them? They say, you know, the Tachrichen don't have pockets. And you've never seen a U-Haul attached to the back of a hearse. Because you can't take anything with you. You can't take anything with you. You all know the story of Rothschild and he left a tzava. And in his tzava, he had a second tzava to be opened in 30 days. And the first tzava, he said, I want to be buried in my socks. Not just tachrichen, I want to be buried in my socks. And they went to the Chaber Kadisha. The Chaber Kadisha says, it's not the minute, we can't bury him in the socks. And they went to the Rav, and the Rav said, what can I do? There's nothing we can do. And they went to the Godel Ador, and the Godel Ador says, that's not the minute. And as much as the children wanted to honor their father, this tremendous philanthropist's request, they couldn't honor it, because it's not the minute, it's not the custom, it's not what we do. So they buried him without the socks. And 30 days later, when they opened the second Sava, what did it say inside? By now, my precious children, you know that I couldn't be buried even in my socks. That with all that I had and all that I accumulated and all that I amassed, you can't even take your socks with you. It's not the minag, it's not the custom, it's not who we are. The only thing that we really ever have is what we've given. You don't have what you have. We've lived through market turns and economic cycles and we've seen crashes and we know whatever you think you have and whatever you think is super protected, you don't have anything that you have. Paradoxically, the only thing that you have is what you gave away. The only thing that no one could ever take away from you is what you gave away. What you have and try to hold on to, 
That's vulnerable. That could disappear. What you gave away. So the Mabim says, You can't take everything. Okay, so new, what can you take? And the Mabim says, There is something you could take. You know what you could take? What you gave to others. You have a little pinkus, you have a little notebook that goes with you to Shemayim. And it doesn't say in it, the stocks and the mutual funds and the CDs and the real estate holdings, it doesn't show your assets and your portfolio and your investments. That's not what the Rebbe Shalom cares about. That doesn't come with you. No matter how secure, no matter how much you put it in your name and your wife's name, the other person's name, LLC, you can't take that with you. The only thing you can take with you, paradoxically, is what you chose to give, give away. After you're gone, it will be given away. After you're gone, it will be given away. I don't know if anyone remembers, but many years ago, unfortunately, we read, led a series of rallies. <clears throat> there was a man, a psychiatrist, who refused to give his wife a get. The wife didn't live here, she lived in Israel. The chief rabbi of Israel reached out. She happened to have that prestigious position there and said, Can we do rallies? We engaged him, we did rallies. Nothing helped. Nothing helped. I'm not going to take you through the entire story right now, but this has been an interesting last few days, even for me, because I had several interactions and led countless rallies. He died this week. He died. He never gave the get. She's finally free because there are two ways that a woman goes free, and we couldn't expedite this one, but it came. And there's mixed feelings because, you know, this is a man, he had four brothers, his daughter now came to town, his daughter he was estranged from for 25 years, never met her child, her, his grandchild. He had four brothers, hasn't spoken to them in 35 years. So here's a man, she came to town to figure out what's going to happen. He was, a, he was a successful child psychiatrist. He has a home and car and money, and there's no will and no one can figure out, and she's now come to town and it falls on her to figure out. She has to get a court order to be able to get into his house, to look through his papers, to figure anything out. I'm struggling, it's a separate topic, but do you feel pity for such a person? So sick, so, so disturbed, that we should be filled, filled with pity and rahmanas, that a man could be alienated from his siblings, from his daughter, never meet his grandson, be so cruel to not give a get just to hurt someone. Or do you say, no, he's a Russian Marusha, and he should burn in Gehenna, and there are people who, the choices they make in life, they're a Russian Marusha. I don't know. I'm struggling with that myself. I'm struggling. But whatever he tried to accumulate in his life, he took none of that with him. And frankly, wherever he's going right now, he has tremendous regret because he took nothing with him. There's no kindness, there's no goodness, there are no relationships, there's no memories. He is empty-handed. So that's v'yikhu truma, says the Beis HaLevi. Not v'yitnu, but v'yikhu. When you give away, it's the greatest security you could have. The greatest asset you could have is not what you hold on to, but dafka, what you've given away. So v'yikhu, not v'yitnu. And that's why lo yikach hakol. They can't take everything. I, what can you take, says the Ma'abim? Not what you're trying to hold on to. The only thing you can take is, in fact, what you have, what you have given away. Only what you've given away. Okay. So far we've covered the opening word of the, of the Parsha. Let's see if we can get any further today. Rabbi Salavechik notes that there's a fundamental difference between this form of tzedakah and other forms of Are we really 20 minutes into this year? I give a thought. So Rabbi Salavechik notes there's a fundamental difference between this gift and the other forms of giving. Normally when it comes to tzedakah, the Ramam, we've shared this before, says tzedakah is the wrong word, it should be called chesed. I worked hard, I earned the money, and you're asking me to share it with others, a distribution of my wealth? Why is that tzedakah? That's not tzedek, that's not righteous, that's unrighteous, that's not just, it's, it's, it's a lack of justice that I have to take what I earned and give it to someone else, it's not a political commentary, it's an observation, economic observation. And yet the Torah calls it tzedakah, says the Rambam, because it's absolutely tzedek. 
The halacha is that based in, we don't enforce this today, sadly, the closest we come are the announcements that you hear before this year, but the Shulchan Aruch still codifies, we don't practice this, kofen, you can force a person to give the tzedakah they have to give. By the way, they have to give 10%. What did I read about several months ago? There's a country, a Scandinavian country, I forgot, that one day a year publicizes everybody's tax bracket. They make very public everybody's income and, t- and tax bracket. Could you imagine? And then we would see whether people are really contributing to their capacity. The person in the community who makes $20,000 a year and gives $300 to Tzedakah, whatever, as an example, is, is hurting more than the person who's making $2 million a year and they're celebrated because they gave $5,000. They think that they deserve to be uh, honored every Monday and Thursday. It's a ratio, it's a proportion, it's a percentage of what, of what we make, of what we make is our responsibility to give. So the halacha, the Shulchan Aruch says, that in fact shul dues and school tuition should not be based on one standard flat fee, but rather it should be a direct proportion of your income, of what you make. We have a responsibility, 10% nicer. We have a responsibility at a ratio of what we make. I'm not telling you what the percentage should be. I'll leave to the politicians to debate brackets and percentages and so on and so forth. But the notion that it's, ta- it's, it's tiered and staggered based on income is not just a, a nice concept, it's a halachic concept. As is the idea that kofen, that you're allowed to force. In the time of Beisden, we could actually go into your property and take it away. There'd be a lien on your car. We'd say, look, we got a hold of your income. We know what you make, and you're barely given anything. Ah, you gave a relatively large number, but relative to your income, you gave barely anything. So guess what? We've impounded your car or a several of your cars. We've taken away your Rolex. Bezden had the right coffin to be able to force that stucca to be given. Why? Why is that a righteous thing? So why is it called stucca? It should be called chesed. It's not tzedek. And where's the righteousness in Bezden's capacity, their license to go into your property and impound or place a lien on what you own until you give stucca? And so Rabbi Soloveitchik explained, the Rambam, based on what the Rambam writes there in Mornavuchim, it's called stucca and tzedek because really it all belongs to Hashem. We are stewards of whatever we have. It belongs to the Rebbe Shalom. And he gave it to us, telling us how to allocate. And when we don't allocate properly, when we abuse the allocation, we've abused the right to have it. So when Beisden comes and says, we're taking 10% of what you have, they're not robbing you, they're not stealing from you, and they're not asking you, they're not forcing you to, to perform a kindness. They're simply doing what's righteous, what's just. That 10% never belonged to you. You were just watching it. You were a steward on top of it. It was an escrow fund. And you know, when you intermingle escrow funds is when lawyers and financial advisors get into a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. For two years, I sat on the Florida Bar Grievance Committee. I was the assistant rabbi, and one of the lawyers in the community thought I would enjoy that exercise. I was on that Bar Grievance Committee. It was a fascinating two years hearing bar grievance complaints and being part of the committee that made recommendations of exactly what should happen. The majority of the cases that we heard, there are some really fascinating ones, but the majority of the cases that we heard were mingling escrow accounts, mingling escrow funds. The lawyer just borrowed from the escrow fund because they had bills to pay and they knew they were going to get a cash flow and they returned it and it turned out they didn't and they mingled escrow funds. So when we don't give our 10%, we're mingling, mingling our escrow fund. The Rebona Shalom, that 10% doesn't belong to us. It's not chesed that we give 10% to others. It's tzedek, it's stucca, it's what's righteous. And therefore, Basin can come in and say, you've done something illegal. 
you're mingling the escrow fund, that 10% with your other funds, that's illegal. We're putting a lien on your house, on your Rolex. We're putting a lien on your property until you settle the escrow fund, give the 10% that you have to give. That's the halacha normally with tzaka. And yet here, when it comes to the Mishkan, Rabbi Soloveitchik points out, what is the pasuk? Me'es kol asher yidvenu libo. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. Nobody's emotionally manipulative. Nobody's extorting the money. And nobody's putting a lien on your property. All they're asking you is, from the generosity of your heart, from the goodness and the graciousness of your spirit, would you like to make a donation to the Mishkan? Why the difference? Why normally with Staka do we say it is a strict rule, it's called Sedek, Staka, not Chesed, and Beisden can go in and take it. And when it came to this appeal, this solicitation, nobody could force you to do anything. It was only for those who did it with a full heart. If you didn't do it with a full heart, don't do it. What's the difference between the normal tzedakah and this appeal for the Mishkan? And what the Rav says, what Rabbi Salavitchik answers, really is the theme of our entire parsha. It's the theme of the rest of Sefer Shmos. It's the theme of our lives. What's his answer? Tzedakah is a strict financial responsibility. It's a tax. It's an obligation. It's an escrow fund. The money doesn't belong to you. You mingle it, You've done something illegal, Beisden can go and retrieve it. This isn't about a financial obligation or a financial tax or a financial responsibility. What is this about? This is about moving in together. It's about building a home. This is about a relationship. So the husband, the wife says to the other, if you don't want to live here, I'm not forcing you. I'm not going to get shackles or handcuffs and force you to live in my house. Only be in this relationship if you're in it with two feet. Only be in it if you want to be here. If you don't want to be here, you know, you love the girl. But she doesn't love you. So you're going to hire two thugs to go, tie up her hands, put her in handcuffs, bring her under the chuppah, and make her marry you? What kind of a marriage is that? That has happened. Not with thugs and not with handcuffs, but with manipulation and with extortion and so on. It's terribly tragic when it happens. What kind of a marriage is that when you force a person to stand under the chuppah and you force them to come home with you? That's a marriage, that's a relationship. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, this is different than my other tzedakah projects. Giving to Tomchei Shabbos, and giving to the scholarship fund, and giving to the base medrash, and providing for the shul, and the school, and the Erev, and the kashras, that if you don't give, you've stolen. Because I had escrow. You have 10% of your income, should be an escrow to support those causes, and when they don't, you've stolen. And Beisden's going to come in, and they're going to take it. They're going to put a lien on your property. But when it comes to your love, and your relationship, and your being with me in my home... Don't be there unless you want to be there. Don't come unless you want to come. It has to be from the generosity and the graciousness of your soul. Listen to the words of the Rav. Man is basically a homeless being. No matter how large and opulent his home, he is exposed. He's subject to the vicissitudes of life, subject to nature, which at best is indifferent to man, at worst is hostile, and subject to an inscrutable future. There is only one home where man gains security. Hashem is called Mi'ona in abode. Dvarim, Perak Lamed Gimel. The only home where man can find security is in the Ribona Shalom. Hashem told Moshe not to collect the money for the Mishkan by using force, because the Mishkan was to be built only if the nation felt the need to build a home for Hashem on their own. For Hashem to descend from infinity into a Mishkan built by man is Kiviyochel, a sacrificial act on his part. This act of self-contraction was a sacrifice. He was willing to make it, but only if the people themselves wanted a Mishkan and were willing to contribute to build it. So says, Hashem, says uh, Rabbi Salavitchik, a great insight. He says, you know, you're worried about a hurricane or a tsunami. You're worried about the negative 7,000 degrees elsewhere in the country. 
How are you going to sustain? How are you going to be comfortable? Someone told me, I was just talking to someone who lives in the Midwest, said they have to run the water regularly because if you don't, your pipes freeze over. These are Baruch Hashem considerations that we don't have. <laughs> Make sure you turn the faucet, all the faucets on every now and then, keep the water flowing, otherwise you're finished. These are not our considerations. Having enough sunscreen, that's our problem. But the running the pipes is not the problem. So how do you know your pipes are going to freeze? Your roof's going to cave in from the snow. Your house is going to blow away. Your windows are going to implode from the hurricane. So you try to fortify your home. You do everything you can to build it to code. And you do everything to try to be protected. And you know, with that, you're never protected. There's nothing with all the money in the world you can do to build a home in which you can rest comfortably. I'm not trying to scare anxious and neurotic people right now. But there's nothing you can do with all the money in the world to build a fortified home that is so strong that there's nothing to worry about. Someone could fly a plane into your house. I don't care how strong you built it. Someone could plant a, your home. There's nothing. There's only one home. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is given the name in Sefer Dvarim. He's called our home. Mi'ona, our abode. Why? Because, so to say, we live in Him. We invest in Him. We find refuge in Him. Under His shadow, under His cloak, under His wing. The only security we have is when we trust in Him. So how do we express that trust? How do we enter His home virtually, spiritually, metaphysically? How do we enter Hashem's home? How do we live under His shelter? Only when we want to be there. If you're being forced to be there, you're not under His wing, you're not in His shelter, you're not living with His home. Because Baruch Hu says, I came down here to be with you and you don't even want to be here? I came to move in with you and you don't even want to be living with me? I'm out of here. It's much better where I was. I sacrificed. I was mitzamtzim myself just to get here. So what did I do that for if you don't even want to be here? And that's why Rabbi Salavitchik points out, this is different than every other form of tzedakah. Other forms of tzedakah are legalistic. They are legislated. They're your obligation. If you don't give, Beisdin can come and take. But this is not about being a legal responsibility. This is about the generosity of your heart, of your soul. It's a question of, do you really want to, do you really want to be there? And the question is, do you really want to be there? Where is the there that you really want to be? So the parsha, of course, continues with the obligation, the responsibility to build the Mishkan. Build me a Mikdash and live where? And then. If there were a top five list, I don't know, my, my friend and cousin David Beshevkin, if he puts together a top five list of most cliched divrei Torah on the planet, this has to be up there. Why is it in the singular Vyasuli Mikdash make me a sanctuary? The Shachanti Bisokham and I will dwell where? In them. Why the shift from the singular to the plural? So everyone knows that the Torah is not talking about specifically the bricks and mortar. It's not talking about the physical vessels that are going to be described in the rest of this parsha and Sefer Shmos. But where is the Vishachanti Bisokham? Where is the Bisokham? In you, in all of us. You see this in fact from a Machlokas Rashi and Ramban. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daftazayin, says, if you look at our Pasuk, Build me a sanctuary, I'll dwell in them. I'm on uh, the bottom of page 444, turning the page to 446. Build me a sanctuary, I'll dwell in them. And what does that sanctuary look like? How do I know what to build? Everything I will show you. I'm going to show you all the details. Kadesh Baruch Hu is very detail-oriented. In fact, the Mishkan is a microcosm for how our homes are supposed to be. I just bought a Sefer last week when I was in Israel. 
but a bunch of volumes of this author. I don't know who the author is. Not because I don't know. Nobody knows. It's a series of svarim that are called Chovas HaAdam Ba'olamo. I think he's up to 13 or 14 volumes now. Rav Moshe Weinberger recommended it to me last week when he was here. And it's very hard to get. We don't know. The author does not list his name. If you talk about an act of... So many people write books because of their own ego. They're proud. They write a book. They put their name on it. They tell everybody. They give it out. They sign it for you. When someone produces 13 volumes and stays hidden, concealed, is there any more evidence of just how genuine they are and the message they want to get across? The only reason they're producing it is to try to inspire and enrich others. So he has an entire volume on Chobos HaAdam Ba'olamo called Seder. Why it matters in Judaism to be organized. To be organized clean and on time. I'd like to buy several copies and distribute them to certain people. <laughs> Some who I happen to live under the same roof with. But it's an incredible safer. In fact, I thought maybe, maybe it's a Shabbat Shuvah topic. Seder. Where do we see in Judaism the notion of being orderly and time? And as I started to look through the safer that I just got, I thought that's exactly what these parashiyos are about. Hashem says, I'm about to show you. I'm going to model for you. This is what a home should look like. And the details matter. The dimensions, where you place it. Is it organized? Is it clean? Is it timely? This carbon could be offered only from this time. That carbon could be offered from that time. Here's the way it should appear. Here are the activities. Here's the schedule. And everything has to be exact and organized. And Hashem says, this is a model for a Jewish home. So our Pasha Truma, so... I'm getting ahead of myself. The end of this passage says, V'chein ta'asu. So shall you do. And it writes in the plural. Everyone, the cliché Dvar Torah is on the Asu Mikdash and the Shachanti B'Sacham. That's the cliché one. Less cliché is, why does it say V'chein ta'asu here? So shall you do in the plural. When in the plural? Isn't it just now? It should be in the singular. So shall you, the Jewish people, here and now, in the desert, at this moment in time, this is what you build. Here are the diagrams, here's the architectural drawings, the engineering plans, you got it all. Do it. Now, you in the singular, you as a unit, as a group right now, do it. Why the chen tasu in the plural? So Rashi says, you know why it's in the plural? This isn't the only house of Hashem that's going to be built. The Mishkan is a temporary dwelling. What's going to follow? The Beis HaMikdash. So the instructions we find in our Pasha are not just for the precursor of the early edition, version 1, but they're for 2.0 and 3.0, the Mishkan, first base of Mikdash, the second base of Mikdash, and the third base of Mikdash, Bimeira V'yameinu. The problem that Ramban says with Rashi is, if you open up Sefer Malachim, Divrei Ayamim, and you look about Shlomo HaMelech, does he follow the details of our Pasha? Absolutely not. Shlomo HaMelech does not build it according to the dimensions and according to the plans of our Pasha. So coming back, says the Ramban, what is V'chein Ta'asu? To whom is Hashem speaking? Thus shall you do in the plural. Thus shall all of you do forever. What do you mean all of you do forever? How many more times? And is it going to happen? And so on and so forth. And the Ramban explains, and this is expanded on famously by the Nefesh Achaim, Rechaim Velashen, or the great student of the Gra, who says, these parshas are not just written, they're not just for them. Then. In every dimension, in every building material, in every functionality, in every component of these parshios is an eternal message that continues to be relevant and continues to speak to us. And that's the Asuli Mikdash V'Shechanti B'Socham. Hashem says, here are the details for the physical plant. But what's true for the physical specs is equally or even more importantly true in your life, in our lives. 
We're supposed to welcome Hashem into our lives through the symbolism, the metaphor, and the meaning that we're going to find in all of this Mishkan and all of its Kalim. It's a magnificent song. The 16th century Kabbalist, Rav Lazar Azkari, Bilvavi Mishkan Evne Lahadar Kvodo, in my heart, I will build a Mishkan. It's based on this Pasuk. So if God really says, I want to find expression through you, so then Bilvavi Mishkan Evne, in my heart, I have to build him a Mishkan. How do I build Hashem a Mishkan in my heart? The dimensions, the building materials, the plans, the layout for the actual floor plant of the Mishkan, that's easy. How do we do it in our heart? How do we do it in our lives? How do we give Hashem expression in the way Bilvavi Mishkan Evne? So the answer is in the word Mikdash. What's the root of the word Mikdash? Kadash or Kodash, holiness. When we live holy lives, we're giving Hashem expression in this world. We're building Him a home. We're giving Him what the Kabbalists call Dira Betachtonim. He's dwelling here in the lower world. We're giving Him expression. When we behave the right way that we behave. Now, I was, in a, I was in this farm store. I told you I bought that safer. In that farm store, I was, uh, took uh, several members of the family. We went farm shopping. And one of the members of the family, I'm not just telling this story to save myself the embarrassment. It actually was not me. It was another member of the family. Desperately had to go to the bathroom. And there was a woman sitting behind the cash register in the store. It was in uh, Kiryat Safer, Modin Elite. And she saw that this member of the family needed a bathroom very badly. And the store did not have a bathroom. You know what she did? She said, I live a few blocks from here. Do you want my address? The key, go use the bathroom in my apartment. Is that an unbelievable act of chesed? You see someone else in pain and fear and anxious and you selflessly, you don't even know the person. My apartment, do you need the bathroom? Please go and use it. Bilvavi mishkan evne. When we act that way towards one another, when we behave in that manner, when we're acting godly and we are an angel for someone else, Bilvavi, we've, we've built a mishkan for Hashem in our heart. And we have given him expression in this world. Bilvavi Mishkanev, the Vishakanti Bisocham. And it comes back to what we said about the Eila Mishpatim. Harsinai is not Nashul. Yes, we explored the notion that the Bima represents the recreation of Harsinai and the Gabayim, or Yoshua and Chur. And we went through the whole notion that when we get together every Shabbos, Monday and Thursday, we ascend the Bima. It's a recreation, a dramatic recreation of Harsinai. It's true. It's true. But the real fulfillment of Harsinai is not even in the Shul. It's in the Ve'ilah HaMishpatim. It's the Suli Mikdash. It's the Bilvavi Mishkan Evne. When I go to work, when I go to gym, when I'm in the farm store, when I interact with other people, how I behave, Bilvavi Mishkan Evne. It's an unbelievable um, responsibility, an incredible charge, and an incredible mission, and it informs the way that we read the rest of our entire Pasha. So let's get going. Ready? That was all an introduction. Now the Pasha class begins. <laughs> So we go through the, the kalim of the, of the Mishkan. The Yasu Aron, the first is the Aron, made of Shittim wood. What you'll find is the following. And the number one parish I recommend on um, Parshas Truma is the Kliyakar. The Kliyakar's parish on Parshas Truma is out of this world. It's off the charts. It's incredible. The Kliyakar says, finds the symbolism, the meaning, the deeper. He notes that sometimes the dimensions are provided in, in whole numbers and sometimes in integers. Sometimes it's a fraction. It's two and a half or is it three? Is it one? Is it one and a half? And he finds a message. I'm just giving you some hints right now because I want to get to the part that I want to look at together. But I'm giving you some hints. As you go through this parsha, note 
When do you see a whole number? When do you see a fraction? What might the message be of when something is only a half versus what it's trying to communicate when you see that it's a whole? The Aron is made out of shittim wood. What is shittim wood? We're going to come back to that. Everything about the Aron. The Aron is made out of wood and yet on the outside it's layered with gold. Now we understand that because even though very few people saw the Aron, only the Kohen Gadol, it was behind the parochas, hidden, concealed, protected, in the privacy of the Holy of Holies. But it was gold. Why? Because our most precious vessel that houses our most sacred luchos, what was inside the Aron? The luchos, the tablets Moshe came down with. What else? The shivrei luchos, the broken luchos. Interesting, its own lesson. We did not sweep them up and throw them in the garbage. We didn't even put them in the recycle. We kept them. We kept the broken pieces. What's the message? What I'm trying to communicate to you is that don't read Truman and go, oh boy, we're up to that part of the Torah which is so boring and irrelevant and inaccessible to me. We're up to the part of the Torah that's the most exciting. It's the most informing. It's the most inspiring. Every symbol, every dimension, everything about these parshios, especially when you learn it with the Kliyakar, is on fire. Totally inspires your life. So, why were, why were the broken pieces held on to? Powerful lesson. We don't throw away the broken pieces. The broken moments, the broken relationships, the broken experiences, the broken people, they're also held and housed in the Aron Habris. Because they're also part of who we are. They're also part of our journey. They're also part of our destiny. We don't discard the broken, we don't discard the broken pieces. I once had to speak at the hardest funeral, second hardest funeral I ever did was for a woman I never met, her daughter I knew. And as we walked into the funeral, as we were preparing and walking into the funeral, the daughter said to me, I don't want you to say anything nice about my mother. She was a terrible person. She mistreated me. She was a horrible human being. Don't say one nice thing about her. I said, is there, is there nothing virtuous to say? Is there nothing? She said, no, there, there is or there might be, but I don't want you to say it. <laughs> because of how abusive she was to me and what she did to me in my life. Okay. Rabbi, please take the shtender. Begin. <laughs> what do you do? I've always wanted to teach a, a rabbinic session in a rabbinical school with, you know, these real life examples. I, was, I said the second hardest. You're probably curious now what was the hardest funeral, if that was the second hardest funeral. At least that funeral, I knew who the deceased I was supposed to be speaking about. I once went to the cemetery to do a funeral, and the funeral director who was there, I knew people were gathered around a grave, and he kept going, psst, psst, called me over. I came over. And he puts a shtender in front of me. He said, I have no rabbi to do this funeral. This was a poor person. I have no family. I need you to do it. And he puts a shtender in front of me. And I didn't know whether in the coffin was a man or a woman, a young person or an old person. I had no idea what to do. Those are difficult moments. Anyway, that was the hardest funeral. The second hardest funeral with the mother, I spoke about this Gemara. Luchos v'shivrei luchos munachem ba'aron. That sometimes even the broken pieces are held on to. Even the broken pieces have redeeming value. What can you find in them? And what role do they have? And why do we hold on and cherish not just the whole, but even that which is shattered, even that which is, even that which is broken? The Aaron is layered on the outside with gold. And that makes sense. Because if the Aaron is our most precious vessel, it should, be, it should appear precious. It should look beautiful. Here's the unusual thing. The Aaron also had gold where? On the inside. Now why did it need gold on the inside? It's made out of wood. The body of it is wood. Even though it was gold, it's known as wood. And yet, it had gold on the outside. That I understand for appearances. Why did it need gold on the inside? Chazal learned an incredibly powerful lesson. 
Because if you present yourself as a scholar, you present yourself as a righteous person, but you are inconsistent, you are duplicitous, you're not uh, thorough all the way through. So you're gold on the outside, you wear your tzitzit out, and you shuckle, and you're frum and religious on the outside, but on the inside you're corrupt, and you're miserable, and you're envious, and angry, and resentful, and unfaithful, in private. Sitter snippets, we're up to, Leolam Yehadam a person should always be the sitter snippets that we send out every day, six minutes a day. Liolam Bali say Liolam Yehadam. Number one, Liolam Yehadam. Even before you get to Yerushalayim, Liolam Yehadam. Goes back to our Seder Dvartor, the Chovas Adam Ba'olamo. Have Seder. Be an Adam. Liolam Yehadam. Be a mensch. Be a mensch. Liolam Yehadam. Shoin. It's enough. Liolam Yehadam. Forever, always Yehadam. Be a mensch, be a person. And then it continues. Be a Yerushalayim. Have Yerushalayim. And where should you have Yerushalayim? Beseser uvegaloi. Because it's easy begaloi. On the outside when everyone sees. But beseser. Be a mensch, even beseser, when no one's around. It's what Menachem Ben-Zion Zaks says in his Menachem Zion. He says, that's what it means, the Mishnah. Be-makam she'en anashim ishtada lios ish. To be an ish in a makam she'esh anashim. To be the guy who shuckles, to be the woman with the longish one esrei, to give the most stuck, to have your name in lights in public where everyone sees, that's easy. But b'makam she'en anashim, where nobody's watching, and no one sees, and no one can observe, b'makam she'en anashim, heshtad that's where we really have to, that's where we really have to show who we are. So tocho kaboro, you can't just have gold on the outside. You gotta be all the way through. The ark was not made out of costume jewelry. It was not trying to impress people with what you saw on the outside. Gold on the outside, but tochel kaboro, matching it was gold on the inside. We did the Aaron in the past. The Aaron had poles in it. Every other kli, the poles that were used to transport it were removed. The Aaron was the only one that the poles did what? The poles remained. Why did the poles remain? So commentaries all talk about what was different about the Aaron. I think it's Rav who has what I find the most beautiful pshat. He says because the Aaron contains the Torah, the luchos and the first Sefer Torah that Moshe wrote, and the Mun, but the Aaron represents it stands for Torah. So if the Aaron represents Torah, the poles are always in to tell us that Torah travels, Torah journeys. Torah is not set for one location. I can't just learn Torah in the base Medrash at Shul. Torah goes with me wherever I go. It's not just Torah, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, not only Torah in Sion in Israel, but Torah keeps the poles. Torah has the capacity always to be able to travel. We have the cover, the Kaporos that has the Kruvim, these two angelic childlike figurines, one time in the Torah described as facing each other, another time in the Torah described as facing away from each other. Chazal tell us, it all depends. These were miraculous. They were rotating cherubs, except there was no device to control them. There was no app. The Ribbon Shalom miraculously controlled them. When we were finding favor in his eyes, when we uh, behaved properly, they appeared as if they were looking at each other. And when we weren't, they were looking away. I once gave a drush, I won't review now, but Dr. John Gottman, as you know, one of my favorite experts, he just came out with a brand new book on marriage, by the way. Seems to be fantastic. But the world's expert on marriage, Dr. John Gottman, who spoke here last year, so he talks about the notion of turning away and turning towards. When a person makes a bid for connection from another, and you can either turn towards or you could turn away. And the ratio that you need of turning towards 
versus turning away in order to have a good marriage. So I once connected that to these kruvim, the imagery of turning towards and the imagery of turning away and what it means to have a good relationship, what it means to have a good marriage, but that's for another time. Then you have the shulchan. The next is the shulchan, which is the table. The table was very interesting. And here the kliyakar again is just out of this world. The table had a crown around it. Why did the table have a crown around it? The border, the border of the table was made from a crown. I don't know, does your table have a crown, of a border? How would you eat? It has a border. The message says the Kliyakar is very simple, that our eating needs to have boundaries. <laughs> there have to be limits to the quantity, to the quality, to the variety, to the expense of what we eat. It has to have a boundary. And in fact, you are royalty, not when you can eat endlessly. What makes you royalty? When you have the discipline and self-control to stop. Royalty is not when you can gorge. Royalty is when you can stop. That's what it means to be royalty. And again, the Kliyakar very, very beautifully talks about the boundaries and the border, and the Shulchan represents the Chesed. This is a recipe. This all informs what our homes should look like. Torah, Avoda, and Gemilos Chasadim are the Menorah, the Mizbeach, the Aron. These are Torah, Avoda, and Gemilos Chasadim, Rav Asher Weiss writes, and that's why the Jewish home has to be modeled with the same blueprint as the Mishkan. These are the core definitions, or these are the furnishings of a Jewish home, and we turn to them in the same way. We then have the menorah. I think last year we talked about the menorah. If you want to listen online, did the menorah have three legs? Was it a solid base? We see there's a difference between the way the Torah tells us here, and look at the way it appears on the Arch of Titus. If Titus commemorated it accurately, it's different than the way it appears in the Torah. Why is that? And how is that? We talked about some of the scholarship on that last week. The cover of the tabernacle, and that brings us up to the walls of the tabernacle, which is what I want to study with you on page 454. That's where we're at. Torah says, Vasisa sakrashim lamishkan atse shitim omdim. Make the planks of the tabernacle acacia wood standing straight up. Standing up straight. Rashi tells us, Asisa sakrashim. So the walls of the tabernacle were made from acacia wood, a type of wood, and the planks had to be standing upright, standing the same direction that they grew. They stood side by side. On the bottom of each plank, two nodules were carved out, and they slipped into a silver socket on the floor, and that's how they were held up by the two nodules, I don't even know if that's the right word, that protruded, and they went into the silver socket that held it upright. Even then it would be flimsy. We're talking about heavy wooden planks. So there were also two poles that were run. So the planks were side by side, and then there were poles on the top and the bottom running in order to further hold them into place. And that created the structure that was the perimeter of the, of the Mishkan. Anyone have a question? Anyone curious about something? Where in the world? Where, where are they right now when they're being commanded and charged to build the Mishkan? They're in the desert. Where exactly are they getting this wood? It's a fair amount of wood to build the Mishkan itself and to build the vessels in it. Where There's no Home Depot, there's no Lowe's. Bernie Marcus didn't exist yet. Where are they getting this wood? Where are they getting the wood? So Zakt Rashi, the Asisa Zakrashim, Hayalolomar Vasisa Krashim, Kamoshinemar Bechol Dovadavar. It should say, build the planks. What do you mean the Ha Krashim? The letter He is the He Hayadiya. The planks. Don't just build planks. Build the planks. Where are they getting this? What's the hey idea? 
You're going to build it from that which was designated, standing, and ready for it. Yaakov Avinu had great foresight and great insight. And he planted cedar wood in Egypt. And he commanded his children, I want you to communicate, I want you to transmit this message. And the message is, whenever you get out of here, whoever gets out of here, the last to leave Egypt, turn out the light and grab the cedar tree. Why? Hashem is going to ultimately command you to construct a mishkan out of Atzeshitim in order to ensure that it's prepared and ready for you in your hand. And this is what we have in the beginning of Yotzer Yom Rishon Shapesach, which if you're all looking at me with a blank stare, it's for a good reason, nobody says this stuff. Some people do, very few, and we try to avoid going to those shuls. Tas mata mezorazim koros batenu arazim biadam mikodim lachain. So there's a big lesson also, by the way. If the Mishkan represents this microcosm of how to live our lives with exactitude, timeliness, punctuality, cleanliness, and Seder, then what enables living with Seder? Preparation. Being prepared. Yaakov Avinu is anticipating a need and he's preparing for it. If you wake up on Shabbos and you say, Oi, we have nothing to eat today for lunch. Why is that? Because <laughs> on Thursday you didn't go shopping and Friday you didn't cook. And in Kedusha B'liachana, if you don't prepare in Arab Shabbos, you can't eat on Shabbos. So they woke up in the Mishka in the Midbar and said, What are we going to build? Oh, Hashem gave us this great gift, these architectural plans for a Mishka, and how are we going to build it? Yaakov Avinu, part of Seder, part of the formula for living a life of Seder is living a life of anticipation, of preparation, and so on. Now these Atseishitim were interesting. The Pasuk tells us Atseishitim are omdim. They were standing up. What does it mean that they were standing up? So the Sforna points out, how else would I think that they could be placed? Horizontally. And why would I think that? How do you put bricks in a wall? Horizontally or vertically? Horizontally. So the Sforna writes, Don't take the wood and lay it flat on top of one another. Don't think that you should build it, the walls of the Mishkan, like you would build walls using bricks. That's not the design. The design instead is omdim, standing up. And why is that? Is that an architectural detail? Is it something more? The Rashbam writes, Standing upright, not lying down. Why? So Rashi quotes, the halacha was, because it has to be, it has to be the way that it grows. That was the halacha. But Soloveitchik expands, he says, The Pasuk is utilized to teach the rule the planks of the Mishkan must be cut from the acacia tree, parallel to the direction of the tree's original growth, and laid so the lower part of the board corresponds to the lower part of the original acacia tree. Derach gidulo. If the board were to be turned upside down with the upper part of the tree corresponding to the lower part of the board, it would be invalid for building the Mishkan. Deriving from this rule regarding acacia planks, the Gemara in Sukkah, Daf Memhei, generalizes any mitzvah that includes a component of plant life has the same criteria that it has to be derech gidulo. So lulav hadasam and aravos have to be derech gidulam. They have to be held in the direction of the original growth orientation. So if you want to be Yotzei the Lulav by pointing it down, you're not Yotzei. You're only Yotzei, Derech Gidulo. It's a condition for properly observing the mitzvah. 
if it's not derech gidulo. The object, the chafza itself, is invalid. An acacia plank erected in the wrong configuration is not considered an acacia plank at all. A luv held upside down is not considered a luv. The Rav's chiddush is, is that a din in the gavra or the chafza, we don't have time for this now, but the Rav's chiddush is that derech gidulo is not a din in the gavra, it's not just how you hold it or how you build it, but it's a din in the chafza. An upside down lulav is nishkan lulav, it's not a lulav. An upside down hadasim and aravos, they're not upside down hadasim and aravos, they're not hadasim and aravos. They're an upside down myrtle branch. And what's the other one? Willow. willow. So it's not a hadasim and a rabos. It's a myrtle and a willow. It's a din in the chefza, not a din in the, in the gavra. Although the schach that covers the sukkah also derives from plant life, it does not require derek yidulo because it can be derived from any number of sources. Only when a specific species is stipulated for fulfillment of a mitzvah does the chefza become invalid through improper orientation. So the rav is noting the halacha. And the fact that we extrapolate the halacha from this Pasuk Omdim, not just the acacia wood, but anything. The question, though, that remains is, why? Why does it have to be derech gidulo? Why can't I lay it sideways? Why can't I hold it upside down? Why must it be derech gidulo in order for it to qualify as the chefzeh shal mitzvah? To meet that standard, why does it have to be derech gidulo? So the Rechaim HaKadosh gives an answer here. And I wish we had time to read it inside, but I'll tell it to you outside. And the Rechaim says the following. He says, you know why? Because what's the purpose of doing the mitzvah? The reason we do a mitzvah is to reach for the heavens. is to try to grow religiously and spiritually. We're doing the mitzvah to elevate ourselves. So therefore, we're stretching and we're reaching for the heights. For the heights. Derech gidulo. The whole purpose we do a mitzvah is gidulo, is to grow. Is to grow as human beings, is to grow closer to Hashem, is to grow to be the best version of ourselves. To do it upside down is to be drawn in which direction? Back towards earth. We're not material beings. We're heavenly beings. We're not drawn towards earth. We're drawn towards the heaven. I repeated this recently, but it bears repeating. I think it's Rabbeinu Bach who says, an animal walks on four legs. The Maharal writes, an animal walks on four legs and its head faces the ground. Why? For the animal, the physical world, the material world is all that there is. They're drawn to the physical world. They're drawn to the material world. That's life. The Maharal says, Behema is... Ba-ma. What you see is what you get. Nobody ever comes home from parent-teacher conferences to sit with the dog or cat and say, you're underachieving, you have such potential, you could get into Ivy League, do you know who you could be? Ba-ma. What you see is what you get. Behema. It faces the ground, it's what is drawn to the ground, it's where it will end up in the ground. We human beings, our name is, Adam comes from Adama. I know I said this recently, I'm repeating it. Adam comes from Adama. Adama is defined as rich with potential to grow. The earth is fertile for growth. Our name, in the etymology of our name, is our mission and mandate to not be complacent and not be satisfied and never think we've arrived, but to always be growing. So while the animal walks on all fours and faces the ground, the human being, first of all, the human being starts on all fours. Because we begin like the animal, self-centered, selfish, need my diaper changed, I need to nurse, I want to eat, I want, I want, I need, I could care less about your sleep or your needs. So we crawl on all fours like the animal, and then we, and then we, and then we stand up. Even in that, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says something amazing. He says that too is part of the difference between a human being and an animal. This I did not say recently. I remember thinking about this when we went to uh, Gore Berman's father's farm. We talked about this because you can witness the birth of a cow. Anyone witness the birth of a calf? 
You have. Why would you have? You have. Unless you know someone who owns a farm in the middle of Florida, you probably haven't. It's an incredible sight to see. Do you know something amazing about that calf when it comes out? It's done. It's ready. It starts walking. It stands. It's ready to go. Shine. Behema. Ba. Ma. Comes out fully formed, ready to go. A human being, a little baby comes out, and it's only several months later when it starts to crawl. I don't know. How old are babies when they crawl? Six, seven months, eight months, depends how uh, precocious they are. So when it starts to crawl, and you get your videotape, and you take the picture, and you're so proud. Oh, they crawled. And they took a first step, and wobbly, and they fall down. And it's only later that they start to walk. Why? Even in that is symbolic of the mission of man is to always be growth-oriented. We start low to the ground. We're like the animal. We're facing the ground. And then we stand, and we reach for the heavens. We go from the animal to the human being. We're on this chart, this plan of growth. The animals, Bama, Behema, it is what you, it is. So, Derach Gidula, when we do mitzvot, they have to be used, Derach Gidula, in the direction that they grew, to remind us it's in the direction we're growing. That we're not done, we haven't arrived. So, your Lulav, your Esra, your Hadassim, your Aravos, the Krushim of the Mishkan, Omdim, we are Omdim. We're not walking on all four, we're not facing the ground, we're not a Behema who's Bama, we're Omdim. We stand upright and we stretch and we reach for the heavens. And we are Adama, Adam, we are continuing to want to always grow. Kliyakar also has a comment here that we don't have time for. And I had more I wanted to say about these Krushim. There's an amazing medrash about the Krushim. But I think we're going to start with that, Mirza Hashem, next year.